everyone, and welcome to a spooky edition of the Pencil in the Stone podcast. On this episode, we have some spooky stories written by some talented writers you already know, and brand new writers we are happy to introduce. And now, without further ado, let us begin, as I'm dying to listen to them. <laughs> It Has Teeth by Connery Hansen. March 12th, 1999. I keep telling myself this isn't happening. That one day I won't find them gleaming in the dusty corners of our home. That I won't look down the garbage disposal and see that white glint catch my eye. That one day I won't wake up to the sound of grinding coming from the cavernous hallways of our home. I keep hoping, but maybe it's time I start understanding. I'm getting ahead of myself though, as usual. My name is Damon Lark. I have a wife named Laura, and together we have our son, Julian. He's nine and a good kid, gets good grades, doesn't misbehave all that much. This all started with him. New Year's Eve, Julian came running to our room, exclaiming he found a baby tooth lodged between the floorboards of his room. Now, Laura and I didn't think much about this at first. We assumed he had lost a tooth and it fell out without him noticing it or something. We told him to put it under his pillow and the tooth fairy would give him some money for it in the morning. Well, morning came and I found another tooth, this one at the foot of Laura and I's bed. I thought Julian left it there. I plucked the thing up and looked it over. It was small but sharp. I would even say serrated. This tooth didn't belong to any person, let alone our son. At breakfast, I asked Julian if he still had the tooth he found. He responded that he had, and was rather upset that the Tooth Fairy hadn't come that night. I told him she would come tomorrow, and he sullenly brought me the damn thing. Sure enough, looking at the, t- looking at the teeth side by side, they were almost exact. The one I found on my bed was maybe an inch bigger, but one thing was certain. These were not human teeth. I told Julian to play in the yard for a bit while his mother and I talked. I don't remember all the details of our conversation, but I do remember checking the locks on all the doors and searching every crawl space or closet for for an animal to be hiding in. We found nothing. Needless to say, my wife and I were concerned. Fool that I was, I told her that we should write it off as a fluke. But then it kept happening, more and more frequently. We'd find them in the oddest of places, in the VHS box, precariously perched by the shower drain. I once even found one in my dinner. I had taken a bite and felt a sharp sting in my mouth as the tooth and as the taste of copper overpowered the flavor of food in my mouth. I spat out the bite into my napkin and found, of course, a bloody tooth. Not mine. No human's tooth. I think it was around then that we began to hear in the darkest hours of the night a terrible grinding sound that would permeate throughout the house, cacophonous and wrenching. I would chase the sound through the house, screaming for whatever was there to show itself, to leave my family at peace. All it ever did was continue to grind as I sprinted around in the dark of a home that I'm beginning to think was never mine to begin with. Laura begged for us to leave, and eventually I relented. The three of us left the house for the weekend to stay in a hotel, get away for a while. Maybe whatever's there would get bored and and with no one there to entertain it. God, we were wrong. When the three of us returned, the place was littered with teeth, some shining pearly white, others rotten and wasting away. You couldn't get an inch without stepping on the things. 
Laura and Julian refused to go inside. They ran back to the car. I had the opposite reaction. I bolted inside, I whipped open every door, turned over every table, flipped the beds, tore down the curtains, screaming for whatever it was to stop harassing my family and leave us be. I did all this under the constant sound of teeth crunching beneath my boots. It was while on this rampage, I heard the sound of our car starting and my family driving away. I rushed outside, but it was too late. They were gone. I don't even know where. Did I scare them? How? I was trying to protect them. I was trying to get rid of this thing, this toothed horror that lurked in our home. Tonight, I'll face it. Tonight, I'll get rid of it for good. So, you're all caught up now. Here I sit in the dark, typing away on my computer to document this. To just leave some form of proof behind of what my family and I was going through. Wait. I hear it. The grinding. It's further into the house. I won't go towards it. This time, I'll let it come to me, if it does at all. It's been 15 minutes now. I hear it coming closer. I hear the clacking of something as well. Bone on wood. Teeth on wood, most likely. It's disgusting, but I dare not move from this place. It's getting closer. If I can see, just see it, them, whatever they are, I can fight it, kill it, capture it, something. It's there. In the reflection of my monitor. God, it's terrible. I see its beady yellow eyes, six of them staring emptily at me. I see its short black matted fur, its spindly legs ending in clawed palms the size of my head. But most of all, I see its mouth. I see its teeth, thousands falling out like rain before spouting new again from its jaws. I have a knife next to me. I'm going to face it. I'm going to save my family. But I can't stop looking at its teeth. Row after row, writhing, growing, shredding, grinding. I'm going to face it. We have teeth. We always need more. That's all. <laughs> the end? Creep. Creep? <laughs> was that good? Yeah. Oh, what I was plug. Uh, if you <laughs> enjoy me not being scary and you'd rather not experience that, um, then you should probably check out the franchise hosted by myself and my be- my best buddies, Tyler Dennering. Uh, Jacob's on it often as well, along with, uh, I'm sure, many other guests you've heard or writers you've heard on this as well. So, yeah, the franchise, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, it's on SoundCloud. It's pretty much everywhere you'll find anything. Uh, yeah, check us out. We'll see you over there. My name is uh, Victor Guzman, and I am reading my story, The Painting.
Joe did not recognize the room or bed she woke up in when she finally stirred from her slumber, nor did she recognize the nightgown she was now wearing. She could not remember a thing, try as she might, and yet she didn't have to think for too much longer. A loud creaking noise from further inside the unfamiliar home she now found herself in began to echo down the hallway right outside the bedroom door. The door, already slightly ajar, opened ever so slightly more, as if pushed open by some non-existent breeze. It was at this point that Joe realized that the faint light that came down from the hall was the only source of light anywhere. She turned to look at the window in the room but saw no light at all from the outside pouring in. Joel pulled off the covers from the bed and, nervous, trembling, made her way to the window to take a closer look, almost hoping to find windows boarded up to explain the absence of any sort of illumination outside. But not only were the windows not boarded up, when Joel looked outside, the night sky was nothing, nothing but black. No starlight, no moon, no visible sign of life at all. Joe could see absolutely nothing else outside but void, void of everything. And the noise from inside the house came again, echoing, louder. Joe did not want to go outside of the room to pursue it, but there was no other way for her to go, and she began to feel herself almost being pulled out into the hallway, like some sort of tether or a shove of static that coursed through her body, prompting her to move forward. She had no choice. Joe stepped out into the hallway, the bedroom door behind her closing itself shut. The hallway was short in length, with eight doors going down the opposite side from where she came out of. The hallway was lined with faded maple wall paneling, with a worn forest green wallpaper running alongside the top of the paneling decorated with fat, maroon fleur-de-lis that looked like they were almost painted on as an afterthought. Or no. Perhaps it's maroon with forest green fleur-de-lis, Joe thought. It was hard to tell. The sickly yellow lighting from the lamps fixed alongside the walls were dim and faintly flickering, and the shadows they cast, against what Joe didn't know, made it look as if the wall, the colors almost bled into each other. It was difficult after a certain point for Joe to know where one color started and where the other ended. And then there was the smell. The smell had suddenly hit Joe's olfactory receptors. A scent that resembled calorie trees and rotting produce left out on a hot summer day. The scent made Joe gag and stumbled back a bit as she felt her stomach churn. As she heard, as she held back a strong bodily reaction to retch, she heard a low squelching sound. She paused, looked around, but found no visible sign to indicate where the sound had come from. And then, a door at the end of the hallway creaked open, slowly but completely open. The tether began to pull Joe once more and she began moving towards the door. The room inside felt larger to Joe than it should have been. The walls from floor to ceiling, though Joe couldn't actually see the ceiling through the shadows hanging overhead, were taller than the walls of the hallway outside and the room went deeper in, almost like a wing of a gallery. Joe almost screamed gallery in her brain. And all at once memories began to flash in and out of her mind like snapshots from a Polaroid camera. She remembered the art gallery that she worked at, the wing of the gallery that she personally curated and put together. And then she remembered the painting. It had arrived towards the end of the day, a last-minute donation left from an unknown, an unknown artist. 
There had been no release or registration form from an artist for it, no letter of provenance or any sort of indication from who or what organization it had come from, or how it had even come to be at the gallery in the first place. But there, sitting in the middle of the acquisition's office, wrapped up in packing paper and tied up in twine, was the painting. Without needing to unwrap it, Joe could tell with a glance that it was 15 by 27 inches, including the frame. Nothing out of the ordinary. It was when she walked up to the painting to begin to untie the twine that she first felt it. That uneasy feeling of someone watching her. Someone singular watching her. But not from any one direction, they were watching her from everywhere. And then Joe was back in the strange house, staring at the wall on the opposite side. And through the faint glow of the lights on the opposite side of the room, through all of the oppressive shadows hanging above and all around the room, Joe could make out outlines of a singular rectangular frame hanging on the wall. Joe knew exactly what it was. She didn't want to go anywhere near it. But she felt herself beginning to move towards it. The tether had already started pulling her. And every step that Joe took felt heavy, weighed down with dread and terror, and sudden glimpses of her in the gallery unwrapping the painting began to flood into her mind the closer she got to it. Joe had undone the twine and unwrapped the paper, and then she saw it. It was done in traditional oil on canvas, 19th century romantic styled. Black obfuscation in the background around the edges of the canvas with two subjects in stark, dark-colored garbs against a gray-white backdrop. The subjects of the painting were a haggard, humbly-dressed woman breastfeeding her infant child, seated on a small bench in a patio garden. It was difficult for Joe to make out details in the painting for some reason, almost as if the only thing you could focus on, the only thing it wants you to focus on, was the woman and her child seated in the middle of the painting. And it was then that Joe noticed the expression the woman wore on her face, a scowl on her face, angry as if outraged for who she was and what she was doing in the painting. The detail on the woman's face made her look old and miserable, despite the fact that she was clearly meant to be younger than the lines on her face made her out to be. The colors looked gross, glistening and moist, as if the paint was still somehow drying despite how old it obviously was, though no paint came on Joe's hands or person. The painting glistened in a way that unnerved Joe, and she held the painting away from her at arm's length as she looked at it. It was only when she held the painting away from her that she noticed that the woman in the painting was looking at her, and not in a linear perspective fashion. Joe could have sworn that the woman was looking directly at her. Meeting Joe's gaze, following her eyes, her eyes are always following you. No matter which direction Joe turned looking, the woman was following her, following you. The room got darker and darker closer Joe got to the painting, but somehow the painting seemed to pierce through all of the shadow, a non-existent pulse and luminous glow, humming and beaming through the black outwards, drawing Joe ever and ever closer to it. It didn't matter how much harder it got for Joe to see through the dark, to see anything else, even the whites of her knuckles of her clenched trembling fists, because she could still somehow see her through all of it. The haunting gaze of the woman in the painting still looked at her, following her, her eyes are always following you, and staring not just at her, but through her, through her very being. And then she saw it. She could swear that the woman had blinked. The light had not flickered. The shadows of the room were not playing tricks on her eyes. Joe had been staring directly at the painting and the woman in it blinked. Joe felt the tether that had been pulling her way ever so slightly. She could sense a feeling of control and autonomy with her legs that she hadn't felt before. And that was enough. She turned around without hesitation and without a second glance behind her. Though she could still feel the woman's gaze, her eyes will always follow you. 
fixed squarely on her. She fled the room, reaching for the door and running back into the narrow hallway. Joe closed the door behind her and immediately began running down and trying to open every door down the hallway, but every doorknob had been locked, including the door to the bedroom that she had awakened from, with no apparent locking mechanism or way to unlock any of the doors. Joe went back and tried every doorknob several more times, avoiding the room where she had found to painting. It had bothered her that even though the door to that room was completely closed, she could still feel the woman's gaze, eyes following you everywhere, watching her, scrambling to find a way out of the house. Eventually, one of the doors did finally open, the door to the bedroom that Joe first awoke in. But behind the stair was not a bedroom, but a staircase leading downwards. Without any other place to go, and still feeling the gaze of the woman always watching you, and the painting fixed upon her, Joe quickly descended down the staircase. The staircase led to the main foyer of the house, large but dimly lit by the glow of the faint wall lamps from the hallway opposite of the front door. Two long, single-pane windows stretched from ceiling to floor on opposite sides of the door, with curtains drawn open to more of the dark, empty void that Joe saw from upstairs. Then the squelching noise, again, from the hallway behind her. Joe turned around to see all of the doors of the hallway slowly creak open, the squelching getting louder, closer. And once again, felt her presence in her eyes, her gaze getting closer and closer. She can see you. Joe turned around and opened the front door, stepping into the void, and found herself back into the same room with the painting upstairs. No, not the same room. It looked similar, but smaller. The walls and the ceiling looked as if they had moved in or pushed themselves in closer. And she was closer, too. And she was smiling. The expression on the painting had changed. Her hair looked more oily, more greasy, her clothes even more worn-looking, and her scowl had now changed into a demented, malicious grin. But even more unsettling, Joe suddenly understood what sound she was hearing. It was not squelching, but suckling. The sound was coming from the infant that she was breastfeeding. It was not a pleasant sound of nurturing. It was ravenous, insatiable, a devouring sound. And in the darkness, she could see the back of the infant's head. It was pulsating. Joe screamed as she turned around and ran back out of the room, back into the foyer. But it wasn't the foyer she came back to. She was in the same upstairs hallway once again. Almost the same hallway. The corridor is shorter. One less door. The door at the end creaked open. Joe knew that she was in there. She's always watching you. But the tether, it pulled her once again. No choice. Joe began to move towards the room, trying her hardest to resist with every step she took towards it, but it was all for naught. She was once again in the room with the painting. The room had gotten smaller, the walls had closed in even more, but the painting, it looked larger. The oils of the paint looked even more moist, like blood dripping on the canvas. Her grin had grown larger, hair worn longer, skin more sunken in, and the child's skin changed. It looked gaunt, gangrenous. Less like a human infant, more impish, monstrous. And it looked larger as it continued to feed more ravenously. The squelching, suckling, louder. The tether loosened once more and Joe took to her feet. She wants you to run, she enjoys it, she enjoys watching you run. Back out into the hallway, Joe tried every door, turning every knob. It was futile, but she had to try. Joe was able to get the last door at the end of the hallway open again. And again, she was back in the room with the painting. The walls are closing in, the painting getting closer, the infant growing every, even larger, and the teeth of her evil grin, less and less human, like needles, pointed, 
She's getting closer. Back out into the door, back out into the hallway. The corridor is getting shorter, another door gone, the light going dimmer, shadows getting larger, the infant squelching getting louder, closer and closer, reaching for every door, turning every knob, another door opening to the room, the painting ever larger, the infant growing ever larger, closer and closer, she's coming for you, she can see you. The tether let her go, let Joe run, she likes to watch you run, back into the hallway, becoming ever shorter, another door gone, she's getting closer, she's following you, she can see you, she's watching you from the dark, she can see you right now, she's watching you, smiling. The walls were closing in, the shadows growling, lights fading further and further as Joe continued to run. She loves to watch you run, she loves to watch you, watching you, watching you right now, watching you run. Joe reached for another door, going back into the room, the painting even larger, the skin more gone. The two almost melting into each other now with the bleeding of the oils of the paint, her fingers longer, almost stretched out, of the infant looking more like a living growth, still gnashing at its mother's breast. No. His head was turning now. Keep running, you know, you want to keep running. Joe didn't want to see its face, she ran once more. You looked when you run back out into the hallway. There were only three doors left. The, the, the tether pulled, but it was almost as if Joe's body no longer resisted it until it was time to run again. No choice in control. She continued to run, watching you run, watching you get closer, closer and closer. The shadows grew larger, the light leaving more and more, and the sound of the infant squelching getting louder, closer and closer and closer. As Joe turned the doorknob back into the room, the painting was practically in front of her now. The walls closed in so much more, closer and closer and the infant's head began to turn more, and then... Joe woke screaming. On the floor in the middle of her office, back in the gallery. She looked out the window to notice the night sky outside. A nightmare. That's all it had been. Joe rubbed her eyes and propped herself back up. She stretched, feeling some pain in her back and on her hip as she rose. Probably from the fall when I collapsed, she thought. Joe collected herself and made her way out of the office and began walking through the acquisitions office when she stopped and saw the paper and twine on the floor, but the painting was gone. The lights in the office began to flicker, and from faintly further in the gallery, she heard it, the suckling. She's here. Joe felt herself almost being pulled as she walked towards the central display room of the gallery, and there... Sitting on one of the benches in the middle of the room was the woman breastfeeding her hideous child. She was looking down and making cooing noises when she stopped, looked up at Joe, and smiled an evil, needle-toothed smile. Then the infant stopped. It turned its head, and facing Joe was a monstrous imp with dead yellow eyes and what looked like inky black ichor running down the sides of its cheeks and mouth. And it screamed. Joe screamed as he ran back to the acquisitions office and straight into her office, running in and locking the door behind her. But when she turned, she found herself back in the bedroom of the house, in the nightgown that she had woken up in. There was a banging at the door as she closed it shut. She held the doorknob and pressed her body against it. The screams of the infant wailing on the other side. More banging, more screaming, 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 banging, screaming, 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 until suddenly it all stopped. All of it. The banging of the door, the screaming of the infant... All was quiet. All was still. And then that's when Joe felt it. A writhing sensation in her stomach like her insides were being twisted around, churning. She felt it inside of her. She felt the bump in her belly and it began to grow larger and larger. Joe sank to the floor screaming in pain as she felt the life rapidly growing within her and starting to tear itself out from within. She felt searing hot pain course through her body until finally she felt hands and a dead head tear right through her, a familiar scream filling the air, and then... My name is Victor Guzman. Uh, the Kaiju Sleeps is my handle on Instagram and 
Twitter X, whatever the fuck it's called now. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed that. <laughs> Have a good one. introduce this aside from have fun it's little skit and i like to call it halloween night but as we're calling it halloween nite (laughs) (laughs) and uh characters we have connery playing jason hello and jared playing shane nope and here we go exterior house late afternoon an ordinary two-story house Halloween decorations adorn the front of the house. Various mutilated fake bodies are displayed in grotesque positions that display their causes of implied deaths. Shane, 20s, walks up the path to the front door, evidently uncomfortable about the presentation of the house. He stares at the swaying corpse hanging from the rafters of the house. As he arrives to the doorstep, the porch light flickers wildly. Shane nervously presses on the doorbell, ring, he waits, with each passing second growing more and more uneasy. Rustling leaves. POV from bushes. Shane turns to the bushes beside the doorstep. He carefully leans in to inspect the origin of the noise. Back to scene. A figure quickly pops from the bushes and instantly startles Shane as he yelps and falls to the ground, flat on his butt. The figure howls in laughter, sliding the mask it was wearing above their face, Revealing the face of Jason, 20s. You asshole. Hello? A little help here? Jason continues laughing as he helps his friend up. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but can you blame me? It was just so easy. Shane rolls his eyes as he's lifted up. I didn't realize a person could do this much overkill on Halloween decorations. Jason opens the door, arms stretched out, welcoming Shane in. Tis the season. Is that not what they say? Shane makes his way inside. Wrong holiday, dipshit. Eh, tomato, potato, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Interior house, late afternoon, continuous. Though outside was decked out for Halloween, inside is in pristine condition. Nothing about the house screams home. The pair walk through the house, eventually settling to the living room. Shane plops himself into one of the couches. Jason follows suit. He reaches below him, opening a cooler with beer. He grabs two, handing one out to Shane. Here, atonement for my sins. Thank you, Father Jason. (laughs) They cheers and chug their beers. Interior, house, night, hours later. Still in their same spots, Shane and Jason are clearly shit-faced. Jason smokes the joint he holds. By the way, when are Andy and Ian joining us? Jason lets out an enormous cloud of smoke, coughing as he responds. <laughs> oh shit, my bad. I thought I mentioned that those lamos ditched us for a different party. I don't know why why would they? I mean, check out the place, am I right? I do. What? Nah, yeah, for real. This place is pretty dope. 
Jason pulls out a remote from his side and presses buttons. The lighting changes and the TV blares noises as it illuminates the pair. Funny Games by Michael Haneke plays. Oh, hell yeah. This is my favorite. To his side, Shane looks at him incredulous, incredulously as gruesome footage plays on the TV. Interior, house, kitchen, minutes later. Shane saunters to the fridge, opening the door and grabbing a water bottle out. Since you're in the kitchen, can you head to the cellar and grab a bottle of wine? Dealer's choice. Which door is it? The one beside the fridge. Shane peers to the side, noticing the door. Found it. Any wine? Nothing is off limits. Shane steps up to the door, his hand resting on the knob. Just as long as it's barreled in this century. Typical. Heard. I'll be back up in a bit. He turns the knob. Creak. Shane's POV. A dark stairwell leading down to darkness. Back to scene. Shane scans near him, quickly finding the light switch. He flips it on, though it doesn't make much of a difference. He shrugs as he takes his first steps onto the dimly lit stairs. Interior, house, cellar, night, continuous. Shane reaches the bottom of the stairs. To his dismay, the light switch he previously used had no control of the lights down at the cellar. Fuck! He pulls out his phone, activating the flashlight setting. He surveys the room, trying to find where the cheap wine would be. He takes his first steps. Clank. Shatter. He looks down, his flashlight illuminating to a broken wine bottle. Oh, fuck. My shoes! Shane jumps away quickly from the pooling red wine. When he's at a safe spot, he bends down and reaches out for a broken piece of glass that has a label. He inspects it. Insert broken wine bottle label. Everything is in French except for the year. Extreme close-up broken wine bottle label. The year the wine was barreled reads 1975. So much for this century. Back to scene. Shane continues forward, determined to find a suitable wine. Interior house cellar. Minutes later. Shane turns to a corner, pulling wine bottles slightly out to read the years. They all appear to be from the 20th century. Finally, he pulls a bottle from 2005. Score! Suddenly rumbling, startled, Shane looks around him. His phone dings, making him jump and scream. He glances at his phone, noticing a text from Jason. It reads, Don't mind the noise. Just engaging the security on. Hurry up, though. Just pick something out. Also had an accident with the 75 down here. You got cleaning supplies down here? Text bubbles appear as Shane awaits a response and then disappears. Shane taps at his phone. Hello? The text bubbles appear again, this time a message replacing it immediately. Bummer. I think there's some stuff through the door near the stairs. Shane texts back. Perfect. I'll be up in a few. Shane locks his phone and holds it out to light his way. He reaches the door that Jason described and opens it, revealing cleaning supplies. He pokes his head in, making sure it's just cleaning stuff inside. Fucker got me traumatized. He shakes his head and reaches for a Swiffer jet and trash bin. Interior, house, cellar later. Shane finishes up cleaning the spilled wine, though a red stain still adorns the floor. He illuminates the floor with his phone, scanning that he soaked up most of the wine. As he reaches near some barrels, red liquid oozes out. He stops, his head tilting quizzically. He holds his breath as he approaches closer to the ooze. The closer he gets, the evident it becomes that the ooze is in fact blood. He bends down, careful not to step on the blood, and peeps into a hole in a barrel, revealing, close up, 
dead body of a woman back to scene. Shane yelps, falling on his back. His phone clatters as it falls away from his grip. He tries to get back up, but the puddle of blood causes him to slip. Eventually, he gets up, scrambling for his phone. Gasping for air, he grabs it, makes a run for the stairs. As he runs up the stairs, he presses the numbers 911. Just about when he's about to press the call button, his phone lets out various screeches, followed by... This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge, sanctioned by the U.S. government. Weapons of class 4 and lower have been authorized for use during the purge. All other weapons are restricted. Government officials of ranking 10 have been granted immunity from the purge and shall not be harmed. Shane stops in his tracks, not really realizing that the door from the cellar is wide open. Commencing at the siren, any and all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 continuous hours. Police, fire, and emergency medical services will be unavailable until tomorrow morning until 7 a.m. when the purge concludes. Blessed be our new founding fathers and America, a nation reborn. May God be with you all. God bless America. Shane looks up to a fully armed Jason. His eyes widen at the sight of the dual bandolier Jason wears. I had heard you scream. Everything fine? Shane stays mute. Jason laughs maniacally. (laughs) I take it you found Andy. The revelation hits Shane. Where the fuck is Ian, you fucking psycho? Ian? Oh, don't worry about him. He's just swinging along just fine. Shane lets out a yell as he charges for Jason, wine bottle in hand. After some struggle, he successfully smashes it onto Jason's head. Jason groans on the floor while Shane darts away from him, heading in the direction of the door. Panting from panic, Shane gets to the door, but just as he's about to turn the knob, he widens his eyes. Squish. He falls to his knees. Behind him, a disarrayed Jason with a broken wine bottle, lodging it further into Shane's neck. Shane gurgles, blood cascading from the wound in his mouth. He falls, struggling to breathe as Jason detaches the broken bottle. Shane glares at Jason. Knowing these are his final moments, he feebly rises his hand out and flips off Jason. Jason lets out a feral scream and lunges to Shane, stabbing him continuously in the chest. After several stabs, his arm falls down, his hand still holding the middle finger. Interior, house, cellar, morning. The sound of tools clanking echo. Near the barrels lay a lifeless Shane with a missing hand. The clanking stops. Jason appears, looking significantly more beat up than his ordeal with Shane. He stops in front of the corpse, crouching down to his level. You just had to break the 1975, didn't you? Jason laughs and shakes his head. My mom mom has always made a big deal about me, leaving things lying around. That was until I left a Hot Wheel wheel car in the top of our stairs. He laughs again, (laughs) this time deviously. He reaches behind him. Good night, sweet friend. He pulls a brick from behind and lays it in front of Shane. Then, with a trowel, lays cement and another brick. I just love these purge nights. Fade to black. (laughs) Damn. Um, don't be psycho killers. That's all I got to plug. Great. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, follow me on Instagram at Jared Padilla 7 And yeah, that's it. 
Yeah, the only movie-related thing. That no, I it can be anything think. related. Okay, follow my band's Instagram at Doomsdays, D-O-O-M-S-D-A-Z-E. Typing it as we speak. Yes. If you enjoy my voice and my performance, you might enjoy hearing me talk about movies with one of my best buddies, Tyler, and many other people on this uh, series as well. I imagine, Lube, you're on yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, give us a check. Franchise or the franchise. We are over in you know, SoundCloud. We're over on Spotify. We're over on Apple Podcasts. We're over on Stitcher. We're everywhere. Yeah. Zombies. Like, yeah, like zombies are multiplying <laughs> like a plague. <laughs> Alrighty. Yay. Yeah. Springs Hill by PBJ. It was a crisp morning, the universal sign that autumn had finally come to Long Beach. For Julia, it was her favorite time of the year. Unlike other parts of the country, autumn in Long Beach meant cold mornings, cool sunny days, and on good nights a spooky fog rolling in from the harbor. Julia loved Halloween, and her obsession with horror grim stories grew the past year when her mother was elected as mayor. Spending so much time at City Hall now, Julia befriended Chief Blake, who entertained her with cold cases as the city council meetings dreaded on late into Tuesday nights. On today's cold case, Chief Blake explained a series of unusual deaths at Willow Springs Hill. City Council had been determined to turn the excess land into a park that would benefit both residents and wildlife. However, a recent study delivered during public comment revealed that the land had been contaminated long ago and was never claimed. Julia and Chief Blake listened from the green room behind the council chambers. Well, it ain't the land contaminants that they should be scared of, chuckled Chief Blake to Julia. Oh, really? Julia rolled her eyes, sensing a scary story coming. While most of the chief's stories were based on real cases from the 1970s, the chief was known to exaggerate. A lot. What's the deal here anyway? Continued Julia. My mom is just trying to make useless land be useful again. Ah, uh, politics, grumbled the chief. There is no politics in murder, though. Julia leaned in. See, back in the day, the land was a dumping ground for oil production waste. The chief took a pause. And for bodies. How many, Julia responded, unfathomed that she was convinced herself that no story could scare her. A few dozen. A cult of pagans had taken possession of the land in 74. Started cleaning up the land like hippies. Then, bodies began to appear. Turned up. Tortured. Oh, please, chief. Don't tell me vegan hippies were cannibals. That's such a cliche, Julia sighed as the city council meeting dragged into its sixth hour. Nothing like that. The people were tortured in ways nobody had seen before. The chief put his face into his hands. Maybe he had gone too far in telling her. You know, 
all the policemen who found and worked on the cases resigned days afterwards and then died in mysterious ways. Now Julia was intrigued. Death, torture, police resigning, she was invested. What happened to them? Oh, I've said too much, chuckled the chief. Your ma would tie and buy behind. And you would be fired for releasing classified information, hollered Anita, the mayor's chief of staff. Chief Blake and Julia said their hellos and exchanged minor conversation. Anita would only stay behind for the tough nights. The rest of the city council staffers and city officials waltzed in. Finally, the meeting was coming to an end. Hey, Ma, um, take Orange up. I want to see something, Julia told her mom. What is it, Jules? Clara asked her only daughter. Clara Nales was a Long Beach native, born and raised in West Long Beach. Her ascendance into local politics meant less time with family and friends, and more time devoted to public service. Bringing Julia to the meetings allowed Clara to spend time with her daughter. Since she was always working, Clara said yes to Julia. Can you stop here? Julia pointed to the dirt road. Clara turns on her emergency lights and puts the vehicle in park and looks at her daughter. Honey, we aren't staging a sit-in in this park. Clara almost had a head-in Texan accent from her time that she spent at Texas University, and that only came out when she was truly exhausted. The council just won't budge on this project. Hmm, what if we get some soil samples? Send them to a research group at a university? The buildings could be repurposed, something eco-friendly. Julia walked around taking pictures of the dark night. Clara smiled at her daughter's resilient take on projects to get things done. These were the times that Clara was inspired by Julia. Well, nothing is going to get done at this hour. Come back to the car and let's go, Clara hollered and waved Julia to return. When Julia got into the car, Clara continued. I'll have to get Hank to do a review of public funds for some lighting and Astrid from Public Works to get some asphalt done. This may be the last dirt road in Long Beach. Now, isn't that scary? Our city at this age still has some dirt roads. Mm-mm-mm. Julia half listened to her mother and through the ongoing list of issues to be fixed in the city. The list was never ending, and she knew this. Julia tried to support her mother as best as she could. But as a senior in high school, she would rather spend Tuesday nights getting tacos and skating on the beach path. Her dad had left both of them at the start of high school and at the start of her ma's second term. He just couldn't handle another four years of his wife in office. One day, Julia came home to a half-emptied outhouse. The man took all his belongings and items that he felt were his by default, like the family's collection of horror films that Julia had been invested since third grade. Nevertheless, Clara determined that she could not let him turn the next four years into a nightmare. Instead, the girl team, as Clara renamed themselves, would move to a smaller house and erase him from their lives. The occasional holiday gift cards arrived by mail, birthday gifts shifted by Amazon from Julia's wish list, and child support funds deposited into a checking account. Therapy would also help both Clara and Julia. But Julia kept a darkness to herself. Chapter 2 The next day, Julia tried to convince her AP environmental science teacher to allow her to change her science project. 
please, I'm begging you. This project would be far more impactful. Oh, come on. Haven't you ever changed your mind, Julia pestered on? All right. Heard enough of your ranting. You really ought to consider going to law school instead of science. Here. I'll pair you with Adrian, Mr. D responded. No, I can do the project myself, Julia protested. Young lady, your mother may be mayor, but I'm your teacher. You'll work with Adrian or you'll have to turn in your original project idea. Fine, Julia said quickly and returned to her seat. Adrian Martinez was a class loner. He ate by himself, rarely engaged in class, and never attended any of the school functions. Julia was supposed to be partnered with him from the start of the semester. But pulling some strings, Mayor Clara had intervened and suggested to Mr. D that her daughter would gain valuable experience working alone. After all, Clara did not want to have did not want Julia to have any distractions senior year. Julia didn't mind working with others, but because her schedule relied on the biggest politician in the city, it was close to impossible to set study dates or carpools. Julia wasn't allowed to be on her own since an attempt on her mother's life nearly six years ago. Julia figured that it was best to be as honest as possible and to get Adrian to change his science project to her idea. Hey, Mr. D assigned me to work on your project, but I have some new ideas, she said shyly to Adrian. Okay, Adrian responded. He continued to work on his class assignment, ignoring her eyes that were drilling him. Okay, so are you going to tell me what your project is on? Julia's temper started to flare. Here. Adrian handed her a report titled Willow Springs, Indigenous Sovereignty Over Toxic Wasteland. Julia's eyes widened. He was doing a project on Willow Springs? Julia started reading it. She was shockingly impressed. Adrian had planned to take samples of the dirt and have his older brother at Long Beach State analyze them for toxins. The proposal was taking the findings to city council during public comment. She could not picture Adrian standing in front of her mother speaking, let alone to the nine council members and to a chamber filled with protesters and advocates of the park. She finished reading and looked towards him. Well, aren't you going to ask me what I think? No. 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 Julia looked at him dead on. I'm not going to ask you because you're going to tell me whether I asked for it or not. So shoot, go. Julia was flabbergasted. Granted, she had gotten arrogant as her mother's years in public office grew, but she would say that she was confidence, not cockiness. Adrian was daring, assuming, and now ordering her. Her cheeks began to turn red. Okay, your proposal is trash. It's a leftist agenda and no one is going to take you seriously. She pushed the, resort, the report to his side of the table. Willow Springs deserves change. It's a toxic wasteland. Imagine the boss, Adrian cut her off. It's a toxic wasteland because of colonization and hostile industrialization. The land needs to return to indigenous people. I wasn't finished, Julia protested. I don't care. You aren't going to come to my project and tell me it's trash. The land should be for everyone to use as a park, Julia continued. The land isn't yours to give. Adrian turned back to his assignment. Julia was silent. Damn, that was a first. The next day in class, Julia thought she came back to a less angry, 
but one look at his face, and she was heated all over again. How would she get through this project? I'll dissent, she told Adrian. He didn't even look. We can split the research, but I'll dissent. Mr. D will appreciate collaboration and challenge of our results. She waited for his response, but this time she turned back to doing her work without his reply. Adrian began scribbling down on his notebook. Project timeline. Soil sampling. Land assessment. Toxin analysis. Results. Proposals. He handed her the ripped question, the ripped paper with question marks on due dates. Adrian had done some soil sampling, but Julia made a point that they would have to dig to get accurate results. Adrian's brother also requested that the samples be submitted and turned around in one day as it was native custom not to remove soil from burial sites. It's just dirt, Julia smirked. You're on sacred ground, Adrian snapped. Julia plotted areas to dig and soil samples were gathered. Adrian would take them home and his brother would work on them all night before returning the soil in the morning. They worked on the project for days after school. While they mainly worked in silence, and even though she annoyed him, Adrian was starting to like the company. Julia had come up with some good ideas, and with her connections, Julia had gotten Parks and Rec to give them badges so they wouldn't be arrested for trespassing. Adrian appreciated that Julia was thinking of things he hadn't thought of. The toxin reports were all over the place, though, and they couldn't agree on what to do next. It's a failed experiment, Adrian said as he threw the dirt sample. Ugh, you're such a guy, Julia responded, annoyed that he would give up so easily. Okay, Sonia, what do you got? Adrian started calling her Sonia after her huge dissent speech. I think we should take the soils home. She knew he wouldn't like the answer. He looked straight into her eyes. Adrian had laid down some rules while they were on Willow Springs, and she had just proposed breaking the biggest rule. Listen, I get that this native stuff is important to you, but don't you think your ancestors would want you to do an experiment right and help them get their land back? We can return the dirt back after the experiment ends. We'll do a ceremony, yada yada, Julia told him. Adrian knew she was right, even if she was annoyingly avoiding being sincere and seemed cold. He'd sensed she really cared about his beliefs. Okay, let's do this, Adrian agreed. They recharted the hill area, dug up samples, and each took half home. Hey, Jules, want pizza for dinner? Clara asked Julia. Sure, Mom. Friday night was always pizza night at the girl team house. Why her mom kept asking her every week, Julia would never know and never question it. Julia worked in her room on soil samples. She was dedicated to the experiment and strangely to Adrian too. She admired him for his dedication. Even he, when he was faced with the impossible, he wasn't going to go down without a fight. Julia smiled warmly, thinking about him, and then suddenly stopped when she heard soft whispers. She exited the room and yelled for her mom. Mom, mom! Clara was glued to the TV watching a congressional hearing on C-SPAN. Yeah, honey? Clara looked at her confused. Did you say something? Julia asked. Yeah, I said these idiots are running the country straight to the ground, Clara responded. 
Clearly, it was time for pizza, Julia thought to herself. She was tired and hungry and could use a break before starting to hear any more voices. Is the pizza here yet? asked Julia. Almost. How about we set up the dining table while we wait, and I'll let you pick the movie for tonight. It was tradition at the girl team house now to watch scary movies on October the 13th all the way to Halloween. After dinner and the slasher movie, Julia put away the experiment for the rest of the night. She laid in bed thinking about Adrian and if he had any weird traditions in his household when she heard a ping from her phone, a text message from Adrian. Adrian. Hey, Sonia. Her heart melted instantly seeing his name pop on the screen and calling her by the nickname he gave her. Julia typed back, H-I. Adrian, how's it going? Julia, it's going. Adrian, cool. Julia, yeah. Julia stared at the bubble moving across and it disappeared. No more messages from Adrian. Ugh, boy, she thought to herself. Julia heard the whispers again. Unclear whispers surrounded her head and then a piercing scream that caused her to scream. Clara rushed into the bedroom with a hatchet in hand. Julia screamed louder at her crazy mother rushing in. Ma, put that down! Well, why are you hollering? I thought I heard something. Clara looked around the room and out the windows, nothing. Faint sirens in the distance were growing louder as they approached the house. Julia turned sharply to her mother. You press the emergency button? Well, you screamed. And it could have been a spider, Madame Mare. This was Julia's way of insulting her mother by calling her Madame Mare. Well, it, you screamed, and it's my duty as your mother to protect you. By calling Long Beach Police Department, Julia mocked her as she went to the window to see six police cars surround the house. Chief Blake used the bullhorn to yell out orders. Come out with your hands in the air. Great, Julia said as she sharply as she stared at her mother. Both of them exited the house, hands in the air. Clara explained that she heard Julia scream and pressed the button. Now both the chief and the mayor looked at Julia. She couldn't tell them the truth, she thought to herself. What am I supposed to say? I'm hearing voices. They'll stick me in a loony bin for sure. I'm sorry, Chief, she began. We were watching a scary movie, and it just got to me. The Chief let out the loudest cackle, and Julia was mortified, head down and walking back inside her house. All right, boys, nothing to see here. Head on out. The Chief ordered the surrounding officers. One by one, the patrol's cars left quietly, sirens and lights off, while the Chief stepped into the home for some leftover pizza and coffee. Clara and the chief stayed in the kitchen table, chit-chatting, although it was mostly the chief, reporting to the mayor on Friday's night's activities. Well, it's Friday the 13th. Memorial's not too busy as a full moon, but you got crazy people up and down this whole city, the chief said. On Monday, Julia looked for Adrian during nutrition. Couldn't wait until sixth period, Adrian asked without looking up to her from his book. Well, no. Something, Julia stammered. Could she tell him? Something happened on Friday. Adrian noticed from her tone that she wasn't her sassy, arrogant self. He looked up at her, concerned, and found himself caring for her well-being for the first time. What happened? He asked gently. 
it's nothing big. Julia tried to brush it off. Maybe she was actually just tired. Or, you know, the horror movie finally got to her. Tell me, he said in a soft voice. Julia felt a rush inside and then she proceeded to tell him everything about the whole night. Pizza, movie, cops, creepy voices, and all. He listened genuinely and he kept eye contact with her. She finished with, what do you think? I don't know. Maybe you were tired. Either way, it's best to do a cleanse, Adrian said in a serious tone. A cleanse? Like a stomach cleanse? No, it doesn't have to be that. You know, burn some sage, something small. Not too complicated, Adrian responded. Listen, we're generations away from our indigenous roots. I don't feel comfortable, you know, doing that stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. Adrian looked back down. What I meant was, I don't feel comfortable doing it myself. Julia reached out for his hand. I was hoping you would come to do it. Yeah. Adrian grabbed her hand and held it. It was settled. Adrian would come over and sage the girl team house. Clara arrived to the house after a shorter city council meeting to find a distinct smell inside her home. Jewels, she yelled from the living room. Julia walked out of her bedroom with Adrian behind her and the instant smoke trailing both of them. Mom, this is Adrian, my science project partner. Well, how do you do? Clara reached out to shake Adrian's hand. Ma'am, Adrian said in a soft voice. Dinner's on the way. Would you like to join us? Clara invited. Julia stammered. Ma, I'm sure he has things to do. Now, Jules, you show some good manners. No, I'm okay, ma'am, Adrian responded quickly. Please, I insist, said Clara. Julia looked at Adrian. You really don't have to, but, you know, you also can't say no to the mayor. Adrian smiled at Julia. He could sense that staying was making her nervous. He turned to Clara. I'll stay. Thank you. Julia, Clara, and Adrian had dinner together talking about politics, school, and the science project. Clara and Adrian had great conversations, and Julia became more relaxed with each bread roll that was finished. When dinner was over, Julia walked Adrian to the door. I can have the police take you home, young man, said Clara from the kitchen. No, thank you, ma'am. I can't scare my mom like that. He looked at Julia and pierced into her eyes and said, Good night, Sonia. Closing the door, Julia was determined to go as quickly as possible to her room to avoid the mayor. But she was her daughter, and Clara was already positioned in the hallway to catch her. He's a nice boy. I like him, said Clara. Julia rolled her eyes. He's just my science partner, and passed her mom in the hallway. I'll have to talk to your science teacher, because I thought I told him to leave you by yourself. Clara continued complaining, and then stopped when Julia closed the door to her bedroom. Inside her room, Julia went straight to her desk to look at the samples. Okay, no voices. This is good. Text message from Adrian. Adrian. Any voices, Sonia? Julia. Gone. Julia. Thank you. Really. Adrian. You're welcome.
The night was cold, dark, and wet. Julia was running up a hill and kept slipping down, tripping down over and over again. She felt sharp nails clawing at her legs, hot blood gushing out, dripping from her mouth, arms, and legs. Dreams are messages from the universe, Adrian told Julia. Is this really bothering you? The nightmares haunted Julia more than the whispering voices that came in and out. At first, she drowned them out with music and keeping busy. She tried to avoid the nightmares by staying up, but then she realized that they came to her even when she napped at school. I just don't feel good, Julia sobbed, realizing that for the first time, she was taking comfort in Adrian's warm embrace. He held on to her and then took a deep breath. It's only a week left until the experiment is complete. Would you be able to hold out until then? Adrian asked. You know, no scare movies, no screamos, no caffeine, sugar, anything else? Adrian warned. Julia agreed. She would begin by taking better care of her body in hopes that everything else would be improved. Adrian wanted to keep his distance, but he couldn't help it. He walked Julia between classes and stayed with her after school. Adrian prepped for their final ceremony in which they would be returning the soil samples back to the park. He even bought Julia a necklace of a willow tree that he planned to give her on the last day of the experiment. It was Halloween night, and since they were out of school early, Adrian and Julia went to Willow Springs Hill to return the soil samples and perform the ceremony. Adrian had a drum and began to chant as the sun went down. As it darkened, they returned the soil by carefully placing it and then watering it down. Julia was impressed by the success of their project and the results of the experiment. It had worked. She hugged Adrian and yelled out in a chirpy voice, We did it! Adrian smiled and reached into his pocket. Here, this is for you. He was a young man of little words, and Julia knew better than to pester him on and make him blush. She turned around and motioned for him to put the necklace on her. His fingers touched her neck and she kissed his hand. He gazed into her enormous brown eyes and leaned in to kiss her, when suddenly loud drum beats surrounded them. Adrian and Julia froze in their tracks and held on to each other as the drums approached them. Julia began to scream, Make it stop! Adrian hugged her tighter as cloaked figures approached them. In a scuffle, Adrian let go of her hands and the figures pulled them apart. Julia opened her eyes to Adrian being tied in front of her. One of the hooded figures held out a knife and slowly approached Adrian. He tried to move and free himself, but it was no use. The tight rope paralyzed any hope of escaping. His eyes focused on Julia, fearing for their lives. Julia kept screaming for help but her pleas were unheard by the figures. The knife scraped Adrian's hand and one by one peeled off his fingernails. The figure took them and piled them in front of Julia while Adrian screamed in agony. She continued yelling for help and screaming his name. Adrian! Adrian! Tears flowed from his eyes and her vision became blurry from the pain of seeing him tortured. She saw another figure approach him. Adrian's scream became bloodier as the figure tore out his tongue and blood gushed out from his mouth. The muffled sounds were worse. 
Julia cried and screamed, choking on her own vomit from it all. Adrian's body became limp from the pain. The figure held him down as they took out butcher knives and began to peel his away his skin, slowly cutting off the top thin layer. Julia cried and closed her eyes. She hoped it was a nightmare. She hoped that she could wake up from everything. She cried and she screamed and pleaded and prayed, and his blood staining the dirt that they had just placed back drip by drip. The dark figure approached Julia, bringing back Adrian's skinned pieces. She couldn't distinguish anything else from them as she walked back to Adrian. After more moans and muffled screams, the figure returned laughing, a dark cackle. The figure tried to grab Julia's hand, but though she tried to fight back, he yanked her arm and forced open her hand to place a warm, oozing ball in her hands. When she opened her eyes, there they were, Adrian's beautiful brown eyes being held in the palm of her hand. Everything went pitch dark as Julia fainted, hearing Adrian's moans silencing. In the hospital, Clara and the chief, Blake, waited in a private office. Still no word on the bolo, Madam Mayor. Chief Blake's voice was somber. Clara continued with her head on the table. Her daughter was missing, and the boy who she had been spending time with was hanging on by a thread. The doctors and nurses could not figure out how he was still alive or even how he would recover from all of this trauma. The chief sent word to bring another tea when a police officer entered the room to whisper into the chief's ear. Clara jumped up at once and began to scream, Tell me, what is it? Please, Madam Mayor, calm down. The chief knew it was useless, and Clara was already restless thinking the worst for her daughter. The forensic team is still looking for any leads, but there isn't any signs of attack in the park. Oh God, where is she? Clara wailed, dropping her face into her hands. At Memorial Hospital, news outlets surrounded the press area. Nurses had strict orders not to let anyone in or out of the floor unless they had approval. Police officers were stationed at every floor and entrance and had the entire campus surrounded. Other policemen continued to surround the park and to search for any evidence of an attack. The entire city was on high alert for any news or for the mayor's missing daughter. The chief left the room to meet the lead inspector, Mark Pell, in the hallway. Are you positive? The chief asked. How can you doubt me? Inspector Pell stated. The scene found on the side of the attack. It seems like a copycat of a cold case. The chief began to sweat. He had studied the cases and knew that the worst parts were yet to come if the monster followed these. Clara came running to find the chief. Chief! Her face was pale and ghostly. And the doctors and nurses were morbid, in shock. Even with the hospital on full lockdown, Adrian was murdered right under their nose. Whoever had attacked him had come back to finish their job. Two days had passed when the foreigner released the certificate of death to the public on Adrian. His death was attributed to cardiac arrest as his heart had been pulled out with human teeth. Adrian's body was left with a hole in his chest, heart missing. The chief had sent the little teeth marks that were left to, to the forensic team to find a match. 
The local news continued to ask the public's help in search for Julia and Clara had temporarily stepped down from her mayorship to focus on finding her daughter. In her home, Clara had built an altar for the Day of the Dead. Next to the photo of Adrian, she placed a photo of her daughter next to a candle, just in case she was dead. She could find her way back home. Clara didn't want to believe it, but somehow she felt her daughter was gone. Clara was falling asleep, arranging simbasuchis on the dinner table, when the door swung open with a large gust of wind. Julia walked in, staining the carpet with blood, holding Adrian's heart in her hands. Epilogue Long Beach Police Department Press Release, November 4th, 2023 At approximately 3.24 a.m., an emergency alert was activated from Mayor Clara Ornales' home. Due to other emergencies in the area, police arrived 12 minutes later to find Mayor Ornales suffering a cardiac arrest. Police found no evidence of foul play or forced intrusion. Traces of blood found in the house matched the 17-year-old victim who was fatally attacked on October 31st. Mayor Ornales succumbed and rode to the hospital, being transported by Long Beach Fire Department. Julia Ornales, daughter to the mayor, continues to be missing and police are continuing to search for her. That's all the spooky stories for this episode, folks. Tune in to the next episode for more. A very special thanks to our writers, Connery Hansen, Victor Guzman, Lupe Cornejo, and PBJ. And thank you all for listening. Glad you made it out alive. Probably because you are worthy.